Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WAB in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. Record-breaking heat, heavy storms and flooding, more frequent wildfires. Climate change is devastating and a part of everyday life now. Today we'll hear about meltdown a recent documentary that looks at climate change through the lens of Greenland, stunning and vulnerable glaciers. Also, an exhibition opening at the DeKalb History Center looks at the origins of Avondale Estates, an area with Tudor-style architecture just east of Atlanta was once known as the haven for health and happiness, but not open to everyone. First, pianist Lara Downs believes in the power of music to unite and uplift. Her recent album, New Day Begun, features works by Black American composers whose music, she says, resounds as a celebration of heritage, a cry for freedom, a call to action, and a promise to the next generation. Lara Downs joins us now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Oh, thank you. It's so wonderful to be back. We last spoke shortly after the release of your Rising Sun recording label. Each month, you offered a new set of tracks that listeners could stream on Spotify. How did that project lead to New Day Begun? Well, you know, when I started the Rising Sun project, you'll laugh, but my initial plan was to record 20 pieces of music that I had identified as um, you know, needing recordings, needing world premiere recordings. I mean, I can see that spreadsheet in my mind. And of course, the, you know, my idea just sort of exploded and, and exponentially grew so that that spreadsheet has, you know, multiple pages now, and there's so much music. And as it comes, I see patterns and narratives and, you know, stories that I want to tell. And so it was, it just felt like time to put together a full-length release that could compile a lot of the music that's come together under this umbrella. Would you talk about the range of composers featured on this album, from musical mm-hmm. pioneers to leading voices of today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's a great observation. It is so broad, and I think you know that's what that's why this album really tells a pretty broad American story. Um, we have music by. You know, William Grant Still, for example, who was writing during the early part of the 20th century and who is credited as a pioneer in so many areas, as a composer, as a conductor, you know, as a, and just a a trailblazer who opened doors for so many people.
Janet Price, same story, you know, just somebody who moved ahead of her time and sort of defied the odds and accomplished tremendous things. And then, as you say, there are composers who are working today, and it's such a direct lineage at this point, and that's why I think it's really important for us to look at this as a tradition and not only as a collection, you know, of independent trailblazers, because that's what I see more and more as I go deeper into this process, just the connections and the, the heritage, you know, the, the lineage and legacy because piece of the tradition. There's room for everyone under that proverbial umbrella you talked about. And each of those composers you mentioned who were trained in the European classical tradition, like yourself, also couldn't help but be informed by music they grew up with, music heard in church, popular music. I was impressed with something I read in the background material for this recording that praises your work for presenting a musical heritage whose story is rarely told on its own terms. Would you elaborate? And how do you achieve that? I think it just comes down to who who has told the story, who has defined the history. This is this is a topic that's really big in my head right now. I've just been on the road for the first time this past week. And I was at the Brevard Festival in North Carolina and working with the students. And we were talking a lot about how we define this tradition. You know, I, I guess we're calling it the concert tradition or the classical music tradition. How do we define it? And it's so clear that it's been so constrained. The definition has been so narrow. I think the moment that we just kind of loosen that, open that up, then we see the truth of what you just said about the, the constant evolution, because every person who's writing is part of a a chain and every person who's writing is influenced by their own time. So it's, I think we've just done such a disservice to keep this weird artificial lockdown, you know, this rooting this tradition in a specific time and place and not letting it continue and grow and change in our imagination. There's a gorgeous music video included with the recording. Would you please describe it? So the video that you're talking about accompanies my new version of Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. You know, there's a song that is very much rooted in its time and place, you know, that was written in direct response to what was happening in the 60s with the civil rights movement. But revisiting it again this year in the midst of another, you know, huge social movement, social change, it really just felt so timely. And I think so connected to my own experience growing up as the child of parents who were involved in the civil rights movement and now as you know a grown person who is living the change of our own time so i worked with um, my friend keith henry brown who's a brilliant illustrator and he did an, an animated video he used a childhood photo of me as a little girl <laughs> <It's so precious. laughs> who's you know standing alone and has this little sign about a change is going to come and then the whole the background fills up with all kinds of people, you know, all shapes, all colors, all sorts of people just coming together. Because I think that's the thing that we have witnessed that we've been part of this year is this really global, diverse coming together, collective coming together and hope and 
work for change. So yeah, I was so happy that we were able to do that. Um, music videos are hard. And when you find exactly the right story that you want to tell, it's really a pleasure to bring you know, so a visual element to the music. Oh, it's so effective. In yeah. fact, A Change Is Gonna Come is one of the two singles you released in June in celebration of Juneteenth and Black Music Month. Laura, it must have been a challenge to narrow down your choices to just two. Why did you want to pair A Change Is Gonna Come with Letty B. Alston's variations on Lift Every Voice and Sing? I think that these two songs represent a lot of what I'm feeling about the unity, as you said, that's inherent in this music. You know, I really love the text of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is known as the Black National Anthem. And it's certainly a song about the Black experience, but the words are Lift Every Voice, you know? And the song is about learning from the lessons of the past and leaning on the hope of the present. And I think that we can all feel ourselves in that. That song took on new meaning for me when um, President Obama quoted from the song in his acceptance speech when he was first elected. And I heard it in a different way because what I heard was a change is gonna come if we bring it. You know, Not that we wait for change, but that each of us makes our own small change and those small changes come together. And that is the only change that's, you know, that is going to come. Um, and I'm feeling that across the board. I'm feeling that in our big, you know, social issues that we need to change that every day, we all just need to do something. And even in my own small little world, I mean, this is what I was saying to the students last week at Brevard, the things that we want to change in our art, in our industry, we change them. You know, we do the little things every day make the change you want to be. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with pianist Lara Downs about her recent album, A New Day Begun. You did not include a vocal version of Lift Every Voice. Is this because you are a pianist and this is your voice. Yeah, well, you know me well enough to know that I steal songs all the time. Um, <laughs> I do think that I, I'm a, a singing sort of a pianist. And so when I have text in my head, I think it comes through somehow. And also sometimes when you do take the words away, you almost let the intention shine in a different way. I don't know, or maybe that's self-delusion, but I, I think that you can, when you imagine the words, you can infuse them with your own meaning, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. The subtitle of this recording is Laura Downs and Friends, and some extraordinary musicians join you on the recording. Impressive friends you've got there, Laura. Violinist Regina Carter, the bass baritone Devon Tynes, and the choral ensemble Tonality. The song I Dream a World is so beautiful and angelic sounding. They achieve this ethereal sound. 
What was it like working with Tonality on this song based on poetry of Langston Hughes? I first worked with Tonality several years ago in LA and was so thrilled to find like minds and like mission. You know, this is a group that is really intentional about presenting music with a message and about presenting in a way that's very inclusive of community and they sing beautifully. And so it was important to me to bring them into this project. You know, we had to make this recording remotely and um, I'm really looking forward to being back on the ground and, and doing some things together in person. I mean, I think you're, you're right. It came out just, it, it's just exquisite. What, what better way to, you know, end this record than with those words from Langston Hughes. It's not the only piece inspired by poetry on the album. Violinist Regina Carter performs Caged Bird. Why is that poem enduring? You know, we're redefining freedom these days, I think. This idea that you can only sing when you're free. You can only express yourself when you have freedom. I think that's another concept to take really broadly and globally and just, you know, live that every day, both in, you know, the obvious large ways and also just in the small ways, just to think about the ways of freeing, freeing ourselves and others so that we can be our best selves and, you know, sing our best song. singing the words. <laughs> well, Regina is someone who has found her freedom through music. And, you know, I'm just so inspired by the way that she has no fear, you know, and has never allowed herself to be boxed in, to be caged in in any way. Just so fully expressive, you know, across genres, across styles, across traditions. So brave. Fantastic. Speaking of across genres, for quite a while now in your performances, in discussions, now on NPR's Amplify series that you host, podcasts, you have addressed elitism in classical music, how it plagues musicians and limits concert goers, limits music lovers. How can these recordings and conversations surrounding your project help broaden the way people view classical music? I guess my hope is that in the moment that we have a different perception of where this music comes from and all the stories that it encompasses, then we have no choice <laughs> but to drop our assumptions and you know our protocols and these like sort of artificial constructs that have been built up 
around this music that keep that keep people out, that keep people locked in. I mean, I think it's just kind of simple. If this music is understood to be diverse and to be inclusive, to to include, like to include so many voices, then how can we keep looking at it in the same old way? I just remember myself growing up in this music, loving it so much, but seeing it as so narrow and kind of accepting that for the longest time. And now that I know the truth of it, I'm just, I'm sort of shocked at how, at how I was able to love it, even though I thought it was so restrictive and restricted. But you're expanding it. What are your hopes for up and coming black musicians and composers trying to make a mark in the traditional classical world? Just for it not to be hard, just for it and just for no one to have to be the first at anything, you know, for composer not to mean one thing so that we don't have to say female composer. We don't have to say black composer. We just say composer. And, you know, that can mean anyone from anywhere. I want young artists of color to look at a world where they just, they see someone who's come before and that person who's come before doesn't look like they struggled. You know, I just want it to be every day and boring and, you know, not a cause for celebration that someone can have the life that they want to have and make the music that they want to make. Pianist Laura Downs is also the host of NPR Music's Amplify. Her new album, New Day Begun, Laura Downs and Friends, features music of various styles by Black composers spanning more than a century. You can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, a look back at the development and troubling history of the Atlanta area neighborhood of Avondale Estates. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When the Atlanta area neighborhood of Avondale Estates opened to new residents in 1925, the developer, George F. Willis, planned for a quaint Old English city with beautiful homes flanking a picturesque town center. It was also developed as an intentional, whites-only exclusive enclave, mirroring thousands of towns across the U.S. The majority of Avondale's historic buildings are preserved, but have ways of thinking remained as well? In The Haven of Health and Happiness, a new exhibition at the DeKalb History Center explores the origins and evolution of Avondale Estates. Rebecca Salem is the curator and exhibit coordinator. She joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. What are the city limits of Avondale Estates? Can you describe where it's located in DeKalb County? It's located a little bit east of Decatur, or east of East Atlanta. And the title of this show is Avondale Estates, The Haven of Health and Happiness. 
What amenities made this city a haven? Well, pretty much anything you can think of. They had a dairy, a plant nursery, a pool, all these playgrounds, an ice house, an up-to-date business district. Um, So it was pretty much a paradise for the people who lived here. But not for those who weren't allowed. Yes, um, it was very exclusive with who could live there. It was mostly middle-class to upper-middle-class white families, predominantly who took up residence in Avondale Estates. What can you tell us about George Francis Willis, the founder of Avondale Estates? And why did he want to make this new city in DeKalb County? From what I understand is he came into a lot of money. He was a salesman of proprietary medicines. I think he was just thinking about the things that he would want to have in his town and encouraging people to take up residence with this perfect town he created. The style of the homes is inspired by Tudor revival architecture, something he took from his visit to Stratford-on-Avon in England. For those unfamiliar, how would you describe the architecture? Well, um, it's actually pretty common to the time period. When you think about it, the Tudor revival, it was popular across the nation during this time. And we have other styles, because everyone knows the Tudor revival, because they've seen the, the town center, the commercial district, and its beautiful buildings in the Tudor Revival style. Half-timbered above on the upper part and stone below? Yes, yes. Typically you see the the white stucco and then the dark wood accents with the Tudor Revival, but that's what's typical of when you think of Shakespeare's uh, hometown. We also have tons of craftsmen and different revival styles seen throughout in the beginning as well. Yeah. This is a very specific time period. Yeah. We, uh, we're focusing on 1924 to about the early 1940s, because that's the historical period of Avondale Estates that was in the National Register. So we're focusing on like the historical years of Avondale Estates, and then we're kind of touching on a little bit the years after and like the 80s and then to today. Although the city had attractive architecture and prominent figures living there, we mentioned it also was built as a whites-only neighborhood. How was that demonstrated during its development? So before Avondale Estates came in, the area was called Ingleside. There were residents living there. Um, It was a lot of farms, but there was actually 2% of Ingleside's population was Black residents. And so when Avondale Estates came in and George Willis bought the land to build Avondale Estates, the Black residents, they were forced to leave because there were um, racially restrictive covenants, basically saying anyone of color could not live in the city limits. But obviously the white residents who were who were there before they could stay, as long as they weren't obviously getting in the way of construction of Avondale Estates. Why was it important for the DeKalb History Center to show the negative impact of Avondale's formation? Well, the whole idea of this exhibit was we wanted to create a fuller picture, like a more whole history, because a lot of times you'll see Avondale depicted as this paradise and it was perfect in every way and everyone was happy here. I was a little disturbed. I was like, well, this isn't perfect. Like nothing's perfect. No town in America is perfect. And so I wanted to create an exhibit to kind of show like, like no town is perfect. Every town has some like ugly history that they have to deal with and they have to look at their whole history. You can't just look at the nice details and just only talk about that. You have to talk about the things that make people uncomfortable and the things that make people smile. And yeah, you just have to tell the whole history. Mm -hmm. Are there remnants of racial exclusion in Avondale today? I'm unsure because I don't live there. I don't know what the day-to-day looks like there. 
Um, I know as far as this country goes, and even Georgia too, I feel like there's still a little bit of the racial remnants of the past that I feel like we all have to work through no matter where we live. Mm. So I feel like, I feel like everywhere has, has some that they have to, to deal with and just be comfortable with it and just know that it's, it's there, but it's fine that everyone has it. Are there black people living in Avondale estates now? Oh yeah. Yeah. Avondale right now is doing very well with diversity. 14% of the population are black residents and there's even 4% of the population that's LGBTQ plus that live in Avondale State. So they're doing very well for themselves. They've come a long way. Yeah, they have. And that's only appropriate and fitting and legal. Yeah. <laughs> the DCAB History Center will showcase photos and documents in this exhibition. How did you acquire those artifacts? So we have a few collections that have been donated to us over the years. We have the Forkner collection. They're the same Forkners who started Waffle House. They have a significant amount of uh, photos from Avondale when it was developing in the 20s. Um, so we have some wonderful photos from that collection. Um, we have the uh, Martin Hart collection, which kind of goes along with that too. And the Marion Reinhardt collection because all of these people lived in Avondale Estates during some part of their lifetime. And now Avondale Estates is on the National Registry of Historic Places. Why are exhibits such as this one important? Well, it's important because, believe it or not, this exhibit, it started out as just being an architecture exhibit. We started working on it, like, I think 2019. And with everything that happened in the summer of 2020, with all of the racial unrest that went on, I looked at it and I thought, I can't just talk about architecture anymore. Like, yeah, architecture is important, but it's also who lived in this town and who built it. That's very important. It's the people that are very important and the architecture for sure. But I think it's important to talk about the people who lived in these places and who built these homes and these towns. Rebecca Selem, curator and coordinator of Avondale Estates, the haven of health and happiness. The exhibition opens this Friday, August 6th, at the DeKalb History Center. You can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Alex Christopher Williams. I'm a photographer and I make work in the style of documentary that deals with masculinity, race, and history. I'm really interested in visual storytelling and I take a lot of inspiration from jazz, stand-up, and poetry. I began making pictures in high school of friends and bands that I would play shows with. I treated photography as a journal and would make pictures of people and places. Some of the pictures were matter-of-fact, while others were little dramas with stages and performances, and most of the characters were my friends. I grew up looking at BMX magazines that always had wild pictures, uh, which definitely influenced the way that my pictures would come to look. I've been so creatively drained from the pandemic to a point where just leaving the house to make work is inspiring in itself. I like to think of my work in dialogue with history, so there's always a lot of research that goes in before making the work. Once I'm on the road, the research becomes somewhat of a style guide and I look to make pictures that surprise me. That's what makes it fun. Atlanta is a beautiful city, and while it's no longer affordable like it was, in many ways, it's a privilege to call it home. I love Atlanta because of the culture, the diversity, the food, and the trees, and the traffic, because you gotta love the traffic. The city has influenced my work immensely. I often feel like I'm walking in the footsteps of many greats who have come before me. 
I'm most interested in what is going on in the city's DIY and artist-run spaces. Craig Drennan's The End Gallery in Sylvan Hills uh, is a great space for experimental practices and exciting new works. There's also Kameas, uh, Day and Night Projects, and High and Low. I'm also really excited to see the Mocha Working Artists exhibitions for this year, especially Zabora Thompson and Kevin Cole. Um, they're definitely some of the great artists in Atlanta. I just published a book titled Black Like Paul with Monolith Editions, and it's out now, so I'm very excited for that. Last year, I opened a gallery called Minor League. I've been putting a lot of energy into working with younger photographers and putting small exhibitions together with them. In addition, I've been putting out this magazine, which is a tabloid-sized newspaper that has interviews and features of photographers' work from the American South. I'm currently working on a newer body of work titled What Color is the Air You Breathe, which is in part a song of protest and part memoir. The pictures reflect the polarized status quo in the country and pictorially investigates images of violence, both conceptually and aesthetically. Alex Christopher Williams on our City Light series, Speaking of the Arts. Up next, Meltdown, a recent documentary that looks at climate change through the lens of Greenland, stunning and vulnerable glaciers. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. To say we're on thin ice has more than one meaning when it comes to climate change. The film Meltdown is shot on the vast ice sheet in Greenland and examines global warming as we view the magnificent ever-changing glaciers in that remote part of the world. The documentary was written by Frederick Golding. The executive producer of Meltdown is the award-winning producer-director Mike Tolan. He's here now via Zoom. Mike Tolan, thank you for joining us. It's nice to be here, and what a time to talk about (laughs) melting ice and climate change, huh? Oh, it's so sobering. Your most recent project was the Emmy Award-winning series The Last Dance, a 10-part documentary on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Meltdown is quite a contrast to that project. Mike, how did you become involved with this film? Well, you know, as filmmakers or content creators, uh, the rubric that is all often used these days. You know, the best we can do is follow our heart and read the tea leaves and things emerge in the most unlikely ways from the most unlikely places. And if I said to you that this film really emerged from an urgency of interior decorating, <laughs> uh, you'd probably raise an eyebrow or scratch your head a bit. But I have a friend named David, who's an art collector, who was staying at my New York apartment for a few days way back in 2015, and uh, noticed without being too critical that the walls were rather bare. And he wanted to know how come and what I was looking for. And I said, well, you know, it's only a part-time place and I'm not there that often. I haven't gotten to it, but... Um, yeah, I got to get to it. And he said, what do you like? And I said, well, I'm partial to photography, um, particularly black and white, and especially landscape photography. And he said, oh, boy, look up Lynn Davis. You know, nowadays, you just, you know, type in those letters and Google away. And there are these spectacular photos that Lynn Davis has been shooting for the last 30 years of the icebergs off the west coast of Greenland, Uh, across from a little town called Alulasat in the Arctic Circle. He introduced me to Lynn. Uh, I loved Lynn's photography. She's got a gallery, the Hauk Gallery on Fifth Avenue. And I fell in love and I said, gee, why don't we go back Hmm. to Greenland? I said, you're a climate change chronicler. She said, well, 
I'd love to go back, but I should tell you, I don't know the first thing about climate change. And I said, well, that makes two of us. <laughs> so <laughs> how about if we bring somebody else who does? And Fred Golding, who, as you already mentioned, was the writer and director and an old, old buddy of mine with whom um, we actually did the Hank Aaron film together, which was nominated for an Oscar. Um, yes. Many years prior in the 90s. May he rest in peace. Henry is... Uh, one of the greatest men I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. And Bill Clinton said about Henry at one of the services um, upon Henry's recent death that you have to measure uh, Henry Aaron's greatness in terms of his goodness. And that is the truth. And those words speak very loudly about a man I admired and loved greatly. Anyway, so Frederick and I went on a, a quest to find a, a true climate change expert. And Fred uncovered this amazing man named Anthony Lazarowitz, who was leading the Yale Climate Change Department. It's not actually called that. It's much bigger than that, but it encompasses studies of climate change. And uh, Tony is a social scientist. And so his focus is not necessarily on measuring the abatement of the glacier or the temperature changes or, you know, the analytics. His focus is on attitudes. And so he has created this paradigm uh, as a way of looking at the way people approach climate change, the way they think of it, the level to which they consider it a priority, you know, on the spectrum from apathetic at one end to alarmed at the other and everything in between. So it's very, it's, it's great for someone like me, who is always, you know, kind of questioning myself and how could I be contributing more to the alleviation of greenhouse gases and how can I live my life in a more environmentally positive way. And anyway, Anthony never had been to Greenland, had been studying it and considered it ground zero for his studies and was so excited about going. It was a little kid in a candy shop kind of as a, as a baseball guy. He said to me, this would be like I was offering you a chance to go to Wrigley Field or Fenway Park for the first time, wouldn't it? And I said, yep, the two shrines. So Lynn was excited and Anthony was excited. And we decided to not have them meet until they meet on film in Greenland in a little cafe in Alulasat. And so what really emerged, um, as you've seen, Lois, is a, is a unique look at climate change and global warming from the dual perspectives of art and science. Lynn is focused on the beauty and Tony is focused on the impending tragedy. And as you see in the film, they really enjoy, I guess, the exhilaration of discovering their focus in, in their professional lives from an entirely different perspective and really opening their minds to these other kinds of considerations. So I really think it kind of shakes our beliefs up and, uh, and puts them in a very different perspective. Yeah, with her photographic eye, Lynn brings the artistic point of view, and Tony Lazarowitz provides a scientific explanation. I think it's very effective in the way that we as viewers see how their perspectives come to inform each other's understanding of the subject. Would you talk about how the film unfolds? It's essentially a conversation. Yeah, it, it really is that. I mean, this was uh, late summer around Labor Day, so it wasn't full on, you know, midnight sun, but it was a lot of, you know, let's say 16, 18 hours of sun. So we had a lot of time to go out on boats and examine the icebergs. And Lynn was always commenting on the qualitative and quantitative difference in the icebergs from the previous trips. Um, there was a lot of just getting to know each other and, and Tony asking how Lynn got introduced to Greenland and how it came about that she journeyed from New York City, where she was living all the way to Greenland. And and Lynn asked Tony, you know, how he got interested in this subject. So it's, there's a lot of personal. Lynn talks about coming to Greenland originally out of a sense of loss. Lynn was a photographer in a very uh, elite and prestigious group of downtown New York, mostly portrait photographers led by Robert Maplethorpe and Peter Hoover. And, and she was um, right in that cozy little group. And in the 80s, during the AIDS crisis, she just watched them disappear one by one. And she was feeling this enormous sense of loss. 
And her husband, Rudy Wurlitzer, a filmmaker in his own right, saw these photos in a magazine of icebergs in this far-reaching part of the globe and showed them to Lynn and said, they kind of remind me of some of your nudes, some of the, you know, the shapes and figures of the icebergs remind me of some of your portraiture. And she said, get me a ticket. <laughs> I need to go as far away from here as I can. I need a cleansing. I need a refresher. And she brought her little Roloflex for those photographers out there. She still uses a single lens camera. It's a tiny little box. She can pack it in her little fanny pack. She still shoots film. She rolls it for eye hand, 12 exposures, just like we used to shoot family photos decades ago, process it in a dark room. And the creations are spectacular because of the way she does it. She can blow these things up to very large size, you know, great for my apartment because they'll fill, fill some walls. Mm -hmm. After all, that was the original intent. But we find out as we wind our way through the film that there's a whole other level of loss that's associated with Lynn's many trips to Greenland. I'd rather not reveal it because it's kind of a surprise at the end of the film and it's a surprise to Anthony and he discovers it with the audience. And they talk very profoundly, very openly about their discoveries and how, again, as I mentioned earlier, you can have tragedy and, and, and beauty intersecting in the same little corner of the globe. And I think they, I mean, Tony was so moved by it that he was tearful at times, just the beauty struck him and he ended up shooting as many pictures as Lynn did. And uh, I think they both came away really transformed by the experience. It, it stayed in my mind when she said, it's not just ice, it's architecture. Mm. And I think you bring out the fact that she photographed ruins, monuments of lost civilizations. And Tony makes the point that, sadly, that's what she's capturing here. Right. Looking at Greenland melting, Tony Lazarowitz says he's reminded of how precious life is, and he remarks, the climate system is an angry, angry beast. Mm. Was your intention to motivate viewers to activism or advocacy? Well, that's a great question, and I guess the right answer is yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> we can all be quiet activists and advocates, and sure, we, we, we should be, some of us probably are in an unknowing kind of way. I mean, if, if you are driving an electric car, you know, that's a form of activism. If you, you know, talk to your kids about recycling, that's environmentally significant. You know, we, we have the tagline, it's not too late. So yes, we want people to watch this film and think to their normal everyday, well, there's nothing too normal everyday about our lives in the last year, but going forward, just being a little more mindful of the things, the little things we can do. You know, it's funny, I saw Bill Gates interviewed on 60 Minutes. He's committing billions of dollars. It's his new cause now as he's moved off of a lot of health crises to take on climate change. And the interviewer said, you know, you're flying around in private jets. You probably contribute more to greenhouse gases than anyone else on the planet. And Bill Gates laughed and acknowledged it. And he, you know, there are ways for people to buy carbon credits and to try to live lives that are carbon neutral and so forth. I think in the long run, Bill's going to do a lot more positive than negative. But I want people to look at it for all of its complexity. It's not just so simple as getting a car that's electric or has high miles per gallon. It's about instilling values in our children, living our life with values. I've talked to some climate change experts who say this quest, this journey, this effort to kind of bring us back, especially after these four dark years where climate change took a beating, is not so much an economic or political quest. It's really more a value-driven spiritual journey where we have to ask ourselves, you know, what it means to be human on this planet, to really address this issue with all its complexity. And that's, how, that's why I love bringing a photographer 
who never really thought of the implications on the climate level, who just saw the beauty, who is now, by her own admission, enlightened. So, yeah, I guess long answer to your questions. I I hope people are enlightened and driven to at least some form of activism or advocacy. Mike Tolan, this has been so interesting and enjoyable. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Executive producer Mike Tolan. His new documentary, Meltdown, can be streamed on Apple iTunes, Vudu, Xfinity, and other streaming platforms. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the High Museum's outdoor installation, Outside the Line. Designer Brian E. Roberts tells us about this new immersive maze of accessible sensory environments. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up with it on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also check in with us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.